Welcome to Episode 5 of Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and as usual, I will be spoiling this entire episode, as well as most of The Lady Vanishes and a whole lot of other stories that use the same basic idea. In fact, I'm going to nerd out so seriously that, as you can probably see, we're going to have quite a long episode here. You can skip ahead if you want. Otherwise, follow me. If you look up this episode in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an illustrated guide to the 10-year television career of the Master of Suspense by John McCarty and Brian Kelleher, you will find it listed as The Vanishing Lady. This is a mistake, but an understandable one when you consider the possibility that the authors never actually got to screen the shows. There are incorrect plot descriptions that strongly indicate that. In their note for the episode, the authors state, The original title of this telefilm was Into Thin Air. However, the title of the Wolcott story, on which it is based, was later retained for broadcast, perhaps because it sounded like The Lady Vanishes, one of Hitchcock's most popular British films. In fact, the opposite is true. According to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, the original title of this episode was The Vanishing Lady, the same title used on television's Sure as Fate, broadcast October 17, 1950, with Kim Stanley and Jeff Morrow in the leads. Vanessa Brown and Joan Brooks played the female protagonist in other earlier network productions. However, it was suggested that audiences might confuse this production with Hitchcock's earlier motion picture, The Lady Vanishes, so the title was changed to Into Thin Air. Hitchcock himself refers to The Lady Vanishes in his introduction, as you will hear, and there is no doubt that in both stories an older lady vanishes and a younger woman becomes frantic to find out what has happened to her, only to discover a conspiracy of deception and silence, but for very different reasons. According to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, this is the only time that Hitchcock mentions one of his movies in his introduction. Since this episode is heavy with history, I think the best thing to do is to run through it first. That way we'll all know what story we're talking about as we move back in time and find it in various permutations. Tonight we are going to tell the story of a woman who disappears into thin air. By the way, have you noticed that thin air seems to be the type of air most conducive to disappearances? There certainly is a fact well worth knowing. Now, in case you seem to recognize parts of this story, don't be alarmed. It is familiar because it is a classic of its kind. Many, many people have borrowed this legend quite profitably, too. Two novels have been written about it, and it has been made into a motion picture called The Lady Vanishes, once by no less a personage than uh, Alfred Hitchcock. It was also related by Alexander Woolcott in his book, While Rome Burns. Here, following our sponsor's all-too-brief message, is our version of that famous old tale. Now, I had better get out of the way to enable you to see better. May I have a bit of thin air, please? So here's Into Thin Air first broadcast on October 30th, 1955, starring Pat Hitchcock, directed by Don Medford, with a teleplay by Marion Cockrell. 
The time is the 1890s, and Diana Winthrop has just arrived at the Hotel Madeleine in Paris with her mother, who is not looking particularly well. Bonsoir, madame. Vous avez retenu une chambre? I'm afraid we don't speak French. Do you? Does anyone here speak English? Forgive me, mademoiselle. I was asking whether you had reserved rooms. We are extremely busy at this particular time. Oh, yes, we, we reserved by cable six weeks ago from India. Winthrop. Winthrop. Ah, je suis désolé, mademoiselle, mais nous n'avons... Oh, forgive me. I'm afraid we can only give you one room in the stead of the two that you have requested in your cable. You see, Paris is so crowded with the visitors who've come to see our great world exposition. However, yes, we can... Yes, yes, thank you. That'll do nicely. Diana signs the register, and she and her mother are taken up to room 342, 342. Diana is impressed by the room and remembers all the details of it. Her mother has become weaker and has to lie down on the bed. A maid comes in to help her, but they decide they better call the doctor. So the doctor arrives, examines Diana's mother, and clearly becomes alarmed. But he doesn't necessarily speak in an alarmed fashion to Diana. We have a small problem. The medicine which I require must be prepared. And I'm afraid you will not find the chemist shop open so late as night. Therefore, it is necessary to procure the necessities somewhere else. Now, my wife, she is uh, she's licensed by law to dispense the medicine. So you will take a message to her, mademoiselle, and bring the medicine back here to me. I'm sorry that we do not have telephone facilities in our home. Otherwise, my wife would be enchanted to bring you the medicine back here. So Diana takes a carriage to the doctor's house, where she meets the doctor's very creepy wife. As the pie lady, Jacqueline Pye, puts it, Diana arrives at the doctor's house. His wife not only has a license to dispense medicine, but she also seems to have a license to be extremely sinister. She asks Diana to wait as she prepares the medicine. And Diana waits and waits and waits until finally the doctor's wife comes out with a small bottle wrapped in brown paper so you can't see what it is. I regret, Mademoiselle, the long delay. But you see, the medicine must be prepared with great care. Yes, yes. Thank you. Merci. Goodbye. I must hurry back to my mother. It's taken so long. It's nearly midnight. And yes, that's a phone ringing in the doctor's house, even though the doctor told Diana that he had no phone. Now, I doubt that French telephones in the 1890s sounded like that, but that's what telephones sounded like in the U.S. in the 1950s, so the audience would recognize it immediately. Diana returns to the hotel, and that's when it begins. May I have my key, please, number 342? Qui désirez-vous voir, mademoiselle? I'm afraid you've forgotten. I don't speak French. Pardon? Oh, whom does Mademoiselle wish to see? I, I want the key. The key to my room. But uh, the name, please. Winthrop. Miss Winthrop. I'm here with my mother. Winthrop? Uh, Winthrop, I'm sorry, Mademoiselle. Don't you remember? We asked for two rooms and you only had one. Well, I signed that register right there. I'm sorry, mademoiselle, but see for yourself. Number 342, Monsieur Duchesne. He has been with us for some days. Diana checks the register, and her name is gone. It does look, though, like somebody erased it and wrote another name over it. 
She insists that it's the right hotel. They bring the porter in. He denies ever having seen her before. They bring the maid in. She denies ever having seen her before. The doctor is not there, she's told. Diana doesn't know what to do next. They give her a room for the night, and the next day, she goes to the British Embassy. What's happened? What can have happened? Where's my mother? I know it's the right hotel. I remember all of those people. Oh, but that doctor. I did sign the register. Oh, there has to be an explanation. I'm not going out of my mind. Oh, no, certainly not, Miss Winthrop. As you say, there must be an explanation. I clearly remember Perhaps. all those people who now choose to deny they ever saw me before. Oh, I'm afraid. I must have help. The embassy will help you, of course. Yes, I uh, think the best thing to do is to get in touch with your relatives in England and well, arrange... I won't leave Paris without my mother. My dear Miss Winthrop, what possible reason could the people at the Madeleine Hotel have for such a conspiracy? I should very much like to know that too, Sir Everett. You may have recognized Sir Everett's voice. He was played by Alan Napier, doing a wonderful job of the stereotypical 19th century pompous British Empire civil servant. He clearly has no interest in this problem, so he passes it along to his assistant, Mr. Farnham, who is played by Geoffrey Toon. One of the first things Farnham does is he unwraps the medicine given to Diana by the doctor's wife. Mr. Winthrop, this isn't medicine. This is a small bottle of Vitel water. You could have... It could have been bought anywhere. But, but that's what she gave me, the doctor's wife. She made me wait nearly two hours for it. Why? There's an interesting little moment in that scene where Diana says, I remember all of those people, all but that doctor. Later on, when she's at a cafe with Farnham, she refers to the first doctor. So it appears that there was probably a scene where there was a second doctor that was cut. So Diana and Farnham return to the hotel, where the desk clerk suggests to Farnham that he seek competent medical aid for Miss Winthrop. So Diana and Farnham don't get anywhere. They reconnoiter at a cafe. Diana remembers that the telephone rang at the doctor's house, even though he said he didn't have a phone. Farnham thinks that's interesting but he doesn't see how they can use it. Then Diana remembers something else. I know. Why didn't I think of it before? I know exactly how that room, number 342, looks. I've never been to Paris before. I couldn't possibly know what it looks like, could I? If I'd never seen it, if Monsieur Duchesne had been in it for several days. That's quite true. Tell me exactly how that room was. It had green damask drapes, rose pattern wallpaper, an ormolu clock, a sofa in gray, a gray rug, a little oval satinwood table, and a big four-poster bed. I think that's all I can remember. Oh, yes, a lamp. That's all she can remember. Seems pretty good to me. I can't even remember it now after she said it. So they go back to the hotel. The problem is, when they let her into the room, it's completely different. Diana is completely beaten down by the whole experience. Farnham takes her back down to the lobby, tells her he's going to put her into a different hotel before returning her to London. But then Diana sees something, and her whole demeanor changes. Painting the hotel. 
Oh, yes, sprucing it up for the exposition, very likely. Change my mind. I want to stay here. Oh, no, surely not. You'd much better... I'm sorry, but I do. Now, wait. I've changed my mind. I'd like to stay here tonight. Here, mademoiselle? Yes, here. But I... Certainement, if you think that I can... Miss Winthrop, please. Is there any reason why I can't stay here? Oh, no. None at all. I, I want room 342. The desk clerk tries to talk her out of it, coming up with various excuses as to why she can't have room 342. But in the end, he agrees to let her look at it again. And this time, on her way out of the room, Diana tugs on some loose wallpaper. Look! Mademoiselle! There's the old paper. That's the pattern I described to you. They've changed this room, repapered it. Mademoiselle, this is ridiculous. Pay no attention, monsieur. Oh, I knew it. it even smells new. Can you smell the wallpaper paste, Mr. Farnham? Feel the wall. It's cool. It's not even dry yet. Where is she? What have you done with my mother? I like Diana's transformation there. She even pushes the desk clerk aside when she goes into the room. So, yeah, it looks like Diana was right about everything. She was in that room. Her mother was in that room. There's been an elaborate plot against her. So what's it all about? We go back to the embassy for the denouement. Farnham is now calling Miss Winthrop Diana. But it's Sir Everett who explains everything. The doctor saw at once that your mother was very ill. Very ill indeed. He sent you on this wild goose chase to give himself time to make arrangements for her to be transferred elsewhere secretly. You see, before you got back to your hotel, your mother had already died. You must understand we don't condone their actions, not for a moment, but one can see why they did what they did. They've spent millions on their exposition, the city's full of visitors, the hotels are full of guests. As soon as the doctor had reported your mother's case to the authorities, the French government stepped in quickly and gave everyone explicit orders. Where is she? I want to take her home to England. No, my dear. No, I... I'm afraid that isn't possible. You see, your mother died of plague. The bubonic plague. Now, you'll recall that in his introduction, Hitchcock says, Two novels have been written about it, and it has been made into a motion picture called The Lady Vanishes, once by no less a personage than uh, Alfred Hitchcock. It was also related by Alexander Woolcott in his book, While Rome Burns. So that's as good a place to start as any. We'll begin with Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes, move on to Wolcott's story, The Vanishing Lady, that appears in his collection While Rome Burns, and eventually get to those two novels as well, plus a lot more. The Lady Vanishes was made by Alfred Hitchcock in 1938. It is not adapted from Alexander Wolcott's story, but instead from a 1936 novel by Ethel Lena White entitled the wheel spins. Hitchcock, however, was well aware of the legend. Here is Hitchcock discussing The Lady Vanishes with Francois Truffaut. In a snippet from Hitchcock Truffaut, included in the Criterion Collection DVD of The Lady Vanishes. That same story has been done two or three times. Oui? Oui. 
Oh, yes. The remake, no, no remake, you mean? No, 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 different Alors, form. It's the famous legend of the, um, la légende très connue of the old lady in Paris in the 1880. Mother and daughter arrive in la Paris, la Paris, and the mother is taken ill up in the hotel room, and the, um, uh, they bring in the doctors, and the doctor talks to the hotel manager and says she needs certain medicines, and her daughter is sent across Paris by a horse-drawn cab. It takes her, takes her away for about four hours, and she comes back to the hotel room and said, How is my mother? I said, what mother? We don't know you. Who are you? And she said, my mother, she's in room so-and-so. Not at all. Take her up to the room, different room, different wallpaper, everything. The whole, the secret of the story was that the, the, the time... It's supposed to be a true story. It was the Great Paris Exposition. What was the year they built Eiffel Tower? 1880? The mother and daughter had arrived from India. And they found she had bubonic plague. La peste. Oui. And they were scared it would drive people away from Paris if the news got around. That's supposed to be the story. Now, it wasn't Hitchcock's plan to film The Lady Vanishes. Wikipedia says The Lady Vanishes was originally called The Lost Lady, and Irish director Roy William Neal was assigned by producer Edward Black to make it. A crew was dispatched to Yugoslavia to do background shots, but when the Yugoslav police accidentally discovered that they were not well portrayed in the script, they kicked the crew out of the country, and Black scrapped the project. A year later, Hitchcock could not come up with a property to direct to fulfill his contract with Black, so he accepted when Black offered The Lost Lady to him. Here is Hitchcock scholar Leonard Leff in the video essay Mystery Train, also included on the Criterion Collection DVD of The Lady Vanishes. But consider the origins and writers of The Lady Vanishes. First came the 1936 novel The Wheel Spins by Ethel Lena White. Next came the screen adaptation by Frank Launder and Sidney Gilliatt. The screenwriters adopted the broad outline of the novel and used many of its characters, Launder and Gilliatt finished the screenplay before Hitchcock agreed to direct it. But Hitchcock made changes, too. He also asked the writers to alter the beginning of the story and extend the ending. He no doubt added small but telling details throughout, as did Alma Revel, Mrs. Alfred Hitchcock, and the woman credited with continuity on The Lady Vanishes. <laughs> what exactly did she do? She may only have served as her husband's sounding board. If so, that was enough. As Hitchcock said many times, she's the only critic I fear. So while The Lady Vanishes may seem to be quintessential Alfred Hitchcock, its shooting script bore the fingerprints of White, Launder, Gilliatt, and Revel, as well as the director himself. Now, in his book Hitch, The Life and Times of Alfred Hitchcock, John Russell Taylor writes... What really interested Hitch was the idea of the old story set in Paris about a mother and daughter staying at a hotel when the mother is taken ill. 
The daughter is sent on a wild goose chase in search of medicine, and when she gets back, everyone pretends not to know her. Her mother has vanished, along with all trace of the room they were staying in. The story has been adapted straight on several occasions, including one of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Half Hours and the British film So Long at the Fair. But here it was twisted slightly so that the old lady vanishes on a transcontinental train and all the passengers except the heroine either have not seen her or pretend they have not for various reasons, understandable or sinister. So in the film, Iris, played by Margaret Lockwood, is traveling from some unnamed Alpine country back to England on a train, where she makes friends with Miss Froy, played by Dame May Whitty. She falls asleep with Miss Froy in her compartment, and when Iris wakes up, Miss Froy is gone, and no one claims to have ever seen her. Iris ends up teaming up with Gilbert, played by Michael Redgrave, and they get to the bottom of it, which actually involves spies rather than the bubonic plague. Here is the moment in the film where Iris gets to know Miss Froy. Uh, a pot of tea for two, please. Very good. Oh, and, and just a minute. Will you please tell them to make it from this? I don't drink any other. Uh, and, and make absolutely sure that the water is really boiling. You understand? <laughs> it's a little fad of mine. My dear father and mother, who I'm thankful to say are still alive and enjoying good health, invariably drink it. And so I followed their footsteps. Do you know a million Mexicans drink it? At least that's what it says on the packet. It's very kind of you to help me like this. I don't think we've introduced ourselves. My name's Iris Henderson. I'm going home to be married. Really? Oh, how very exciting. I do hope you'll be happy. Thank you. You'll have children, won't you? They make such a difference. I always think it's being with kiddies so much that's made me, uh, if I may say so, young for my age. I'm a governess, you know. My name is Troy. Is that Troy? Miss Froy ends up writing her name on the condensation on the window to let Iris know that it's Froy, F-R-O-Y, rather than Freud. That comes back later in the film, as does the tea that she specially asks to be served to her. Here's the scene that is most like what we're used to in our episode of Into Thin Air. Have you seen my friend? No. Um, my friend, where is she? La Signora Inglese. The English lady, where is she? There has been no English lady here. What? There has been no English lady here. There has. She sat there in the corner. You saw her, you spoke to her. She sat next to you. But it's ridiculous. She took me to the dining car and came back here with me. Who went and came back alone? Maybe you don't understand. I mean the lady who looked after me when I was knocked out. Ah, perhaps it make her you forget, eh? Well, I may be very dense, but if this is some sort of a joke, I'm afraid I don't see the point. Later, two comic relief characters, Caldecott and Charters, have the following conversation. Well, people just don't vanish and so forth? She has. What? Vanished. Who? The old dame. Yes. Well? Well, how could she? What? Well, vanish. I don't know. That just explains my point. People don't just disappear into thin air. It was done in India. What? The rope trick. Now, there's no reason to believe that Hitchcock wrote those particular lines. But if he was thinking of the story that became Into Thin Air, it's possible that he inserted those. 
Otherwise, it's just a neat little coincidence that there's a moment where somebody uses the expression disappearing into thin air and then mentions India. The Lady Vanishes turned out to be a huge success. Robert A. Harris and Michael S. Lasky in The Films of Alfred Hitchcock say, The critics were ecstatic, calling Hitchcock England's greatest director. The New York Critics Award for 1938 went to The Lady Vanishes and to Hitchcock as the best director for that year. Howard Barnes of the New York Herald Tribune summed up how the critics and audiences felt about Hitchcock upon the release of The Lady Vanishes. Even in so synthetic a medium as the screen, it is possible to recognize the work of a master craftsman. The Lady Vanishes is a product of individual imagination and artistry quite as much as a Cezanne canvas or a Stravinsky score. Orson Welles reportedly saw the film 11 times and James Thurber twice more than that. And I don't want to leave The Lady Vanishes without quoting Margaret Lockwood about Hitchcock. I found this quote in Alfred Hitchcock by Peter Ackroyd, as well as Donald Spoto's Spellbound by Beauty and Donald Spoto's The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock. So it's probably pretty reliable. And Margaret Lockwood said that Hitchcock didn't seem to direct us at all. He was a dozing, nodding Buddha with an enigmatic smile on his face. So that's The Lady Vanishes. But what about The Vanishing Lady, Alexander Wolcott's story from When Rome Burns? The story was originally published as two sequential Shouts and Murmurs columns, dated July 6th and 13th, 1929. Jack Seabrook at the Bare Bones E-Zine says, The Shouts and Murmurs column still runs in The New Yorker. From 1929 to 1934, it was the personal weekly column of Alexander Wolcott, a writer who was famous at the time for his humorous insights and curmudgeonly personality. Born in New Jersey, Wolcott helped create the Stars and Stripes newspaper while serving in World War I and became a prominent drama critic in New York City, writing for the New York Times and other newspapers. He was a member of the legendary Algonquin Roundtable. He had a radio show, and he was the inspiration for the character of Sheridan Whiteside in the play The Man Who Came to Dinner. He actually played Sheridan Whiteside in the traveling production of The Man Who Came to Dinner in 1940. Wikipedia adds that he was also the inspiration for the far less likable character Waldo Leidecker in the film Laura. Wolcott was convinced he was the inspiration for his friend Rex Stout's brilliant eccentric detective Nero Wolfe, an idea that Stout denied. Also from Wikipedia, Wolcott Gibbs, yes, that's right, his first name is Wolcott, who often edited Wolcott's work at The New Yorker, was quoted in James Thurber's The Years with Ross, on Wolcott's writing, and he said, Shouts and Murmurs was about the strangest copy I ever edited. You could take every other sentence out without changing the sense of particle. Whole department, in fact, often had no more substance than a talk-of-the-town anecdote. I guess he was one of the most dreadful writers who ever existed. Now, in When Rome Burns, The Vanishing Lady is in a section entitled Five Legends. In fact, it's the fourth of the five legends. I know you're dying to know what the other four are. The first one was Entrance Fee, a story about a French coquette who costs 5,000 francs. So a French regiment does a lottery with each participant putting in some money to pick one lucky winner. The second legend was Moonlight Sonata, about a ghost that is embroidering. The third one, Full Fathom Five, about a ghost of a sailor dripping water and seaweed. And the last one, Rien Ne Va Plus, which is what the croupier says when the roulette wheel is spinning and no more bets are allowed. And that legend is about the apparent suicide of a young American who was wiped out at the roulette table in Monte Carlo. 
The Vanishing Lady is only about seven pages long. And as Jack Seabrook says at Bare Bones Easing, the main alterations made to Wolcott's story in adapting it for television involve turning narrative into dialogue, adding dramatic crescendos, and having Diana take more of an active role in uncovering the truth. In the story, a paper hanger confesses to having repapered the room overnight. In the TV show, Diana herself suspects what occurred and rips the paper off the wall. We're going to talk about that aspect of the story a little bit later on. Now, Wolcott finishes up his version by saying, The story of this girl's ordeal long seemed to me one of the great nightmares of real life, and I was therefore the more taken aback one day to have its historicity faintly impaired by my discovering its essence in a novel called The End of Her Honeymoon, which the incomparable Mrs. Belloc Lowndes wrote as long ago as 1913. Now, in a footnote to the story, Wolcott adds, The story will be whispered as gospel truth from steamer chair to steamer chair, with such shakings of the head and such Lord have mercy casting up of pious glances that it seems ever new, and, with that air about it, gets submitted so regularly to the fiction magazines that it has threaded many an editorial head with untimely silver. You can see Wolcott Gibbs's point in saying that Alexander Wolcott was one of the most dreadful writers that ever existed. One day I received word of its having been published as a news story in the London Daily Mail as early as 1911. The bare facts substantiated by affidavits from attachés of the British Embassy in Paris. Here, I said with relief, is the end of my quest, only to have Richard Henry Little point out in the Chicago Tribune that the entire story had been dashed off by Carl Harriman, one hot summer night in 1889 to fill a vacant column in the next morning's issue of the Detroit Free Press. Closing into my quarry, I called upon the blushing Harriman to tell me whether he had invented the story or, like the rest of us, heard it somewhere in his travels. He said he could not remember. Thereupon, I felt free to consider the question still open, for without wishing to reflect on the fecundity of his imagination, I begged leave to doubt if any man could invent a tale like the vanishing lady and thereafter forget that he had done so. So let's start pursuing like Wolcott did, see if we can trace the story. First, back to Jack Seabrook at Bare Bones Easing. He says, The plague was spreading throughout the world at that time, though it did not reach India until 1896, and thus the English widow could not have contracted it there seven years before. So that all seems to imply that the story didn't really happen. Let's see what else we can find. This is part of a question asked of, quote, investigator.com. I was hoping that you would be able to follow the evidence uncovered by Alexander Wolcott, the famed writer for the New Yorker magazine. He found a very important clue that he described in his book While Rome Burns. The entire story had been dashed off by Carl Harriman. Unfortunately, no one has ever found this article in the Detroit Free Press. Does this article really exist? And quote investigator replies, The brilliant urban legend researcher Bonnie Taylor Blake and QI worked together on this difficult investigation. The earliest instance of the legend, located by Taylor Blake and QI, was not written by Carl Harriman. Instead, the author was an extraordinary woman named Nancy Vincent McClelland, who wrote a version in an article titled A Mystery of the Paris Exposition in the Philadelphia Inquirer, dated November 14, 1897. Taylor Blake and QI also found a version of the legend in the Detroit Free Press in 1898 titled Porch Tales, The Disappearance of Mrs. Neeb. 
but the story's byline designates Kenneth Herford as the author and not Carl Harriman. We hypothesize that Herford is a pen name for Harriman. We also hypothesize that the date 1889 given by Alexander Wolcott in While Rome Burns is a transposition error for the correct date 1898. And then they refer you to a more complete description of the investigation in an article co-written by Bonnie Taylor Blake with Garson O'Toole published in Folktale News. Fof stands for friend of a friend, which is an urban legend term that refers to the apparent source of many of the stories that people hear and pass on. A friend of a friend had this happen to them. And in that article, Bonnie Taylor Blake and Garson O'Toole write, Encouraged by clues left some 80 years ago by Wolcott and Harriman, and armed with digitized databases of centuries-old American and British newspapers and periodicals, we began searching for forms of The Vanishing Lady, that had appeared before publication of Marie Belloc Lowndes' The End of Her Honeymoon, not only were we able to find examples that preceded Belloc Lowndes' take on The Vanishing Lady, including a remarkable piece told as true that had appeared in the Chicago Daily Tribune in 1912, but we also eventually unearthed Harriman's telling, buried within the pages of the Detroit Free Press. Scouring the archives, we succeeded in locating not one, but two instances in which the paper published The Vanishing Lady in the late 1890s. Harriman's porch tales, The Disappearance of Mrs. Neeb, is much like other known versions of The Vanishing Lady. A British mother and her two daughters stop at a hotel in Paris on the way home from Berlin. Mrs. Neeb dies overnight from black smallpox, and the hotel conceals her death to save its reputation. There is no mention of the Paris Exposition, nor is there an assurance that the events described actually took place. Neither Harriman nor his alter ego was responsible for the slightly earlier and unattributed version of The Vanishing Lady we were surprised to discover in the pages of the Free Press. Dropped Out of Existence, a strange and true mystery of the French capital, appeared on November 14, 1897, ten months before the Hereford Harriman form was published. This telling, tighter and much shorter than Harriman's, and less reliant on dialogue, is similar to Harriman's in structure. It describes the arrival at a Parisian hotel of an American woman and her two daughters early during the course of the exposition. They had traveled extensively, despite the mother's feeling ill the entire trip. After the mother vanishes, the girls wait for weeks for a sign of her. At the exposition's close, a police inspector visits the daughters and reveals what he has discovered about their mother's disappearance. She had, in fact, died that night from black smallpox. After coming to terms with this terrible and shocking news, the girls asked to visit their mother's final resting place. The inspector sadly reveals that her grave is unmarked. After some further tracking, we found that this telling had also appeared on the same date in at least three other big city American newspapers and was reproduced in several papers across the country into 1898. The Philadelphia Inquirer's unattributed version from November 14, 1897 is identical to the others appearing the same day, except for its first paragraph. Only the telling in the Los Angeles Sunday Times was linked to an author, a special contributor to the Times, Nancy V. McClelland. As suggested by the introduction in the Inquirer, McClelland may have heard the tale from travelers returning to the United States from Paris. Alternatively, she may have used the powerful skills of invention displayed in her short stories to craft the compelling tale. Now that's plenty right there, but why stop now? Here are some excerpts from Snopes.com concerning the vanishing hotel room. The locale varies, although the usual setting of the story is Paris, during the exposition of 1889 or 1900. Sometimes the two women in the story aren't mother and daughter, 
their traveling companions of roughly the same age. On rare occasions, both the searcher and the one sought after are male, but by far the most common tellings feature a misplaced mother and an increasingly frantic daughter. The story has varying denouement. The classic horror version leaves off with the daughters never seeing her mother again or finding out what happened to her. In other versions, the intrepid daughter, sometimes assisted by a stranger or friend, doggedly pursues all leads until she discovers the truth. This tale is based on a classic paranoia horror plot. The protagonist finds that all traces of his life have seemingly been erased, and he must struggle against those who insist he is mentally ill and attempt to regain his identity. There are two key elements that set this particular tale apart from all others, in which someone vanishes and those involved deny the one who has gone missing was ever there to begin with. They are the refurbishment of the hotel room and the reason for the deception, contagious disease. Jan Harold Brunvand is sort of the face of urban legends. He wrote a number of books, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, The Choking Doberman, The Mexican Pet, that set out to tell all sorts of urban legends to a general audience. In his Encyclopedia of Urban Legends, Volume 1, he discusses this story. And he says, although the vanishing lady no longer seems to circulate in oral tradition, it still occasionally appears in printed sources. Some Americans can remember reading about, or perhaps having seen on a TV mystery program, a version about a woman's death in a hotel during the New Orleans Mardi Gras or the Carnival in Rio. And Broomvan says that urban legends are too good to be true stories that travel by word of mouth, by print, or the internet, and are attributed to a fof, friend of a friend. Urban legends, he says, have a persistent hold on the imagination because they have an element of suspense or humor, they are plausible, and they have a moral. In American Myths, Legends, and Tall Tales, an encyclopedia of American folklore, edited by Christopher R. Fee and Jeffrey B. Webb, there is a reference to an article called A Page of Secret History by W.L. Stewart, written in 1908. In this version, as Fee and Webb put it, the author of this piece cites his source as a British Secret Service agent, thus alluding to the murky world of late 19th and early 20th century secret diplomacy. The use of such a mysterious source is the hallmark of such conspiracy theories, as it makes it impossible to disprove or confirm their veracity. So, in this version, W.L. Stewart hears from a British Secret Service agent the story of the vanishing lady, and he passes it along. So it's a classic example of a friend of a friend, urban legend, gathering steam. Okay, so we've dealt with the urban legend aspect of it. What about some of the literary uses of it? Let's start in 1905 with a novel entitled Room Number 3 by Anna Catherine Green. Anna Catherine Green was one of the first writers of detective fiction in America. In fact, she was called the mother of the detective novel. And in her version, a woman is found dead in the woods outside of a country inn. Her daughter tells the authorities, Sirs, if my mother died in the wood, and for all I can say she may have done so, it was not till after she had been in this house. She arrived in my company and was given a room. I saw the room and I saw her in it. I cannot be deceived in this. So the authorities asked the landlord, did Mrs. Demarest come to the house with Miss Demarest? She says so, was the reply, accompanied by a compassionate shrug which spoke volumes. And I am quite sure she means it. But ask Jake, who was in the office all the evening. Ask my wife, who saw the young lady to her room. Ask anybody and everybody who was around the tavern last night. And in this particular version, the answer is that Quimby, the landlord, his wife, and the aforementioned Jake are thieves. 
Mrs. Demarest walks in while they are going over their loot. Quimby hits her with a chair, killing her. Jake takes her body out to the woods, and they repaper the room she was in. Let's move along to 1913 in the magazine The Sphere, which featured a literary letter by Clement K. Shorter, in which he again tells the legend. In this version, the daughter doesn't find out the truth until a year later, when the chambermaid writes to her to tell her what really happened to her mother. And this particular version ends with the line, But what has this to do with a literary letter, you will ask? Only this, that two separate authors of repute who had heard the story have simultaneously used it in fiction, one in a short story in an American magazine, another in a long novel. I'm not sure what the short story is, but the novel is The End of Her Honeymoon by Marie Bellock Lowndes, who has two other connections to Alfred Hitchcock. What was the first film you yourself chose to do? Uh, my first choice was The Lodger. This is a book by Mrs. Bellock Lowndes about Jack the Ripper. The Lodger actually was a, a, a story in almost one interior. It was um, uh, the landlady asking herself the question, is the man who is my lodger Jack the Ripper or not? The Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, What Really Happened, is also based on a novel by Marie Bellock Lowndes. So in the novel... Nancy has been married for three weeks to Jack. They spend the last night of their honeymoon in a hotel in Paris. When Nancy wakes up in the morning, Jack is gone. In this case, Nancy is helped out by a fellow traveler, an American senator named Burton. And Burton says to the concierge, This lady asserts most positively that she arrived here last night accompanied by her husband, Mr. Dampier, to which the concierge replies, I have already told Monsieur that this lady arrived here last night alone. I know nothing of her husband. I did not even know she was married. To tell you the truth, Monsieur, we ought to have made her fill in the usual form, but it was so late that we put off the formality till today. I now regret very much that we did so. Two years go by. Nancy becomes friendly with the senator and his family and the senator's son, Gerald, falls in love with her and wants to marry her. She falls for him, but feels that she can't marry him because she's still married to Jack. Then at the end of the novel, they have a get-together, and one of the guests is a Mr. Dallas, who is one of the officers of health for the Port of London. And the conversation leads to Mr. Dallas telling a very familiar story. The first night of their stay in Paris, between two and three, the bridegroom developed plague. Monsieur Beaucour tells me that the poor fellow behaved with the greatest presence of mind. Although he cannot, of course, have known what exactly was the matter with him, he gave orders that his wife was not to be disturbed and that the hotel people were to send for a doctor at once. And by the time Mr. Dallas has finished telling his story, Nancy realizes she's no longer married after all. And the novel ends with Gerald asking, Do we know the truth now? Is my search at an end? Yes, she whispers. We know the truth now, my dearest. Your search is at an end. So that's certainly one of the two novels to which Hitchcock refers in his introduction. The other may be The Wheel Spins, but it could also possibly be Lawrence Rising's 1920 novel, She Who Was Helena Cass. Helena Cass is a young, rich American girl traveling in Europe with her mother, and she becomes engaged to a man whom her parents don't necessarily approve of. So her mother takes her on a trip to Spain. They stayed at a little inn in separate rooms. 
The following morning, her mother knocked on Helena's door, but receiving no answer, was about to turn away. Then, stooping, she saw that the key was still in the lock on the inside of the door. She knocked again. There was a sound within a bare feet on the door. The door was unlocked and wrenched open, and a strange man, dark of face, clad only in a pair of drawers and soiled shirt which bared his chest, stood before her. So Mrs. Cass finds the desk clerk, Don Pedro, and he tells her, Don Rodolfo has lived in that room for many weeks. Then what room did you assign to my daughter? Signora, I do not know this daughter of whom you speak. This time it eventually comes out that Don Pedro and others had planned to rob Helena. They snuck into her room at night and thought they had killed her accidentally. So after robbing her, they take her body and they deposit it out in the wilderness somewhere. But Helena is not dead. She's badly hurt, and she ends up dragging herself to a convent. And there, the nuns discover that she is pregnant but single. So it becomes all about the shame and subterfuge over being pregnant and single. Somewhere along the way, her mother tracks her down and helps in the subterfuge. They both leave the convent for a while after her child is born, but eventually Helena returns and soon takes on the name Maria Pia and lives near the convent, raising her son, with her mother continuing the silence. Now, the novel also deals with a young novelist named Jay Sefton, who has loved Helena since he first saw her years ago, and much of the novel is his investigation into trying to figure out whatever happened to her. And he, by the end of the book, does find her. And it appears that she no longer loves the man who was her fiancé, and that after some conversation and heart-tugging, she is falling for Jay. And that's where it ends. So the title, She Who Was Helena Cass, refers to her complete change of life, even a change of name. And the story itself is sort of typical of the time, the shame of giving birth out of wedlock and the different tragedies that can result from that. It's not quite on the level of Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy, but it's tending some of the same ground. On the Golden Age of Detection wiki at gadetection.pbworks.com, Mike Grost writes about Sir Basil Thompson, saying, Sir Basil Thompson's Mr. Pepper Investigator contains a famous story about a woman whose mother disappeared while they are on a trip to Paris. That story, in this case, is called The Vanishing of Mrs. Frazier, and I found it in Dorothy Sayers' collection, The Second Omnibus of Crime. Now, this is the only Mr. Pepper story I've ever read, so I don't know what the shtick is, but after finishing it, it appears that Mr. Pepper is a buffoon, and his assistant, Mr. Meddleston Jones, is actually the real detective, but he sort of covers up for Mr. Pepper. So in this version of the story... Mrs. Frazier disappears, leaving her daughter all alone. Mr. Pepper investigates and discovers, apparently, that it's all a result of the mafia, that they terrorized the hotel management, the cabman, and the others, got the daughter out of the way, changed the room. But in the end, it turns out that it's the plague after all, and it's Mr. Meddleston Jones who deduces that. In 1926, Ernest Hemingway wrote a short novel, entitled The Torrents of Spring, a satire of Sherwood Anderson's dark laughter. In the introduction to my copy of The Torrents of Spring, David Garnett says, The chief interest now in The Torrents of Spring, therefore, seems to me not that it is funny, not that it is a parody of Sherwood Anderson and of his clumsily expressed ideas, 
but that it was a rejection by Hemingway of his teachers and literary advisors, and as such throws light on his subsequent work. It's a very strange short piece, mostly taking place in Petoskey, Michigan. And at one point, one of our main characters, Scripps O'Neill, goes to Brown's Beanery, where he has a conversation with the waitress. And she says, I was not always a waitress. It's rather a strange story. It was the year of the Paris Exposition, she began. I was a young girl at the time, a jeune fille, and I came over from England with my mother. We were going to be present at the opening of the exposition. We registered, as is customary, in the hotel and were given the adjoining rooms we had reserved. My mother felt a bit done in by the trip, and we dined in our rooms. I was full of excitement about seeing the exposition on the morrow, but I was tired after the journey. We had had a rather nasty crossing and slept soundly. In the morning, I awoke and called for my mother. There was no answer, and I went into the room to waken Mummy. Instead of Mummy, there was a French general in the bed. Mon Dieu, Scrip said. I was terribly frightened, the waitress went on, and rang the bell for the management. The concierge came up, and I demanded to know where my mother was. But Mademoiselle, the concierge explained, we know nothing about your mother. You came here with General so-and-so. It goes on, as usual. And she finishes up by saying, I never saw Mummy again, never again, not even once. What about the general? He finally loaned me 100 francs, not a great sum even in those days. And I came to America and became a waitress. That's all there is to the story. There's more than that, Scripps said. I'd stake my life there's more than that. Sometimes, you know, I feel there is, the waitress said. I feel there must be more than that. Somewhere, somehow, there must be an explanation. I don't know what brought the subject into my mind this morning. So that seems to be it. But then after all is said and done, there is an author's final note to the reader. Well, reader, how did you like it? It took me 10 days to write it. Has it been worth it? There is just one place I would like to clear up. You remember back in the story where the elderly waitress, Diana, tells about how she lost her mother in Paris and woke up to find herself with a French general in the next room? I thought perhaps she might be interested to know the real explanation of that. What actually happened was that her mother was taken violently ill with the bubonic plague in the night, and the doctor who was called diagnosed the case and warned the authorities. It was the day that the Great Exposition was to be opened, and think what a case of bubonic plague would have done for the exposition as publicity. So the French authorities simply had the woman disappear. She died toward morning. The general, who was summoned, and who then got into bed in the same room where the mother had been, always seemed to us like a pretty brave man. He was one of the big stockholders in the exposition, though, I believe. Anyway, reader, as a piece of secret history, it always seemed to me like an awfully good story, and I know you would rather have me explain it here than drag an explanation into the novel, where really, after all, it has no place. It is interesting to observe, though, how the French police hushed the whole matter up and how quickly they got a hold of the coiffure and the cab driver. Of course, what it shows is that when you're traveling abroad alone or even with your mother, you simply cannot be too careful. I hope it is all right about bringing this in here, but I just felt I owed it to you, reader, to give some explanation. I do not believe in these protracted goodbyes any more than I do in long engagements, so I will just say a simple farewell and Godspeed, reader, and leave you now to your own devices. In 1938, a German film came out entitled Where Veta Spuren, or Covered Tracks. According to Sandy Hobbs in her Disappearance and Denial, a new look at a legend motif on the screen, where Veta Spuren was made in Germany during the Nazi era. The director, Wait Harlan, was one of the most prominent directors of Nazi propaganda films. 
In his account of the film, the critic of the New York Times, Hal Erickson, writes that Harlan manages to suppress his political beliefs in the straightforward melodrama. However, Leanne Downing, reviewing a book by Karen Beckman, approvingly quotes her view that the disappearance of the mother doubles as a useful justification for the Nazi state's necessary eradication of all socially unwanted bodies. This claim may seem rather far-fetched, but there is certainly one aspect of the Wervetus Beren version of the story which would allow us to characterize it as compatible with Nazi ideology. Seraphine, the heroine, forms a romantic attachment with Dr. Moreau. Dr. Moreau becomes part of the conspiracy to cover up her mother's death. When she discovers the truth, she also discovers Dr. Moreau's role in the conspiracy. This she accepts, and the film ends with them together as a couple. She has accepted that her treatment was necessary for the greater good. To assert that the good of the state takes precedence over truth and the good of the individual hardly seems to illustrate that Harlan has put aside his political beliefs. That brings us to Cabin B-13, a radio episode written by mystery author John Dixon Carr and presented on the Suspense radio drama on November 9, 1943. In this version, a newly married couple boards a ship on the way to Europe. The wife is a bit of a worrier, and the nice twist here is that she's well aware of the old Paris Exposition story. I keep thinking and thinking about that story I mentioned. Now, what story, dear? It's an old one. You probably know it, but it was new to me. A woman and her daughter arrive in Paris and go to a hotel. Oh, you mean the old Paris exposition story? Yes, that's it. The daughter goes out. When she returns, her mother has disappeared. And even the hotel room isn't the same. Later on, up on deck, Anne meets the ship's doctor. And they have a conversation. How do you like the Moravania? Oh, it's a magnificent ship from what I've seen of it. And you know they've given us a very nice cabin down on B-deck, B-13. What's the matter? Why are you looking at me like that? I beg your pardon. Did you say B-13? Yes. Why not? You're quite sure of that, madam? Why, yes, of course I'm sure of it. I, I saw the number on the door. Why not? Well, because... Go on, Dr. Heinrich. Because there's no such cabin aboard a ship. Sure enough, there's no B-13, and Anne's husband has disappeared. She ends up talking to just about every passenger and members of the crew, all except the first officer who is in bed with the flu. And they all tell her they've never seen her husband and that she came on board alone. So is it the grand conspiracy again? Anne thinks it is. Because, remember, she knows the story. I know what it is. It's the old Paris trick. Like in the story. But you won't get away with it, do you hear? Now, look here, madam. I'll go to the purser. I'll go to the captain. Dear Father in heaven, won't anybody believe me? Eventually, Anne gets word from her husband, Ricky. And he asks her to meet him at night out by the lifeboats. Ricky, darling, where are you? Here. Duck your head under the lifeboat. You take my hand. Isn't it horribly dangerous out there on the edge? There's no no reeling along the side of the ship. Don't worry, Anne. I won't let you fall. Look out! Oh, went overboard here. We're well aft near the propellers. The suction would carry into the propeller blades and... Listen. I can't hear anything except the foghorn. Yeah, but I can. There's somebody walking along the deck. And I can see a flashlight moving in the fog. You're quite right, oh. my friend. You can see a flashlight moving in the fog. Dr. Heinrich, 
What are you doing here? At the moment, young lady, I'm covering both of you with a revolver. Please don't move. So, you were in the conspiracy, Dr. Heinrich. May I ask you what conspiracy? The whole ship's conspiracy to say Richard Brewster didn't exist. My dear young lady, you can set your mind at rest. There never was any ship's conspiracy against you. The people you spoke to were perfectly honest. Including Mr. Marshall, I suppose. Yes, including Mr. Marshall. Then what is this all? Stand back there. I suppose he was telling the truth when he said nobody came up the gangplank before or after me. I beg your pardon. That was not what he said. He said no passenger came up the gangplank at this time. Well, what's the difference? A great crime is arranged for tonight, young lady. No less a crime than murder. Murder? Who's going to be murdered? You are. What? That, I repeat, is a scheme. But there is no conspiracy and only one criminal. Oh. And who is the criminal? The criminal is the man standing beside you. Your so-called husband. Ricky? You don't know what you're saying. I think I do. Marshall, of course, did see someone walk up the gangplank, loitering behind you. But he never dreamt of associating the person anyway with you. He saw a ship's officer returning from shore leave in civilian clothes. A ship's officer? Yes. The man you call your husband, his name isn't Richard Brewster. His real name is Blaney. And he's the first officer of the Moravania. Are you trying to tell me the that... The captain my... can identify him. He's actually British, though he can fake an American accent very well. He has already got a wife in England, and he's planning to join her with the $10,000 he got from you. I don't believe it. I don't... Ricky, why don't you say something? Oh, he planned it very cleverly, I must admit. He never let you know he was ship's officer, did he? He's been away for some time, naturally, so he persuaded you to marry him in a hurry. Ricky, Ricky, is this true? Yes, the money, you see. All he did was hang a dummy number on the cabin door, remove it later, put on his uniform, and walk away with his own luggage. But Captain Wainwright told us that the first officer had come aboard tonight with... Uh... With a bad attack of flu, yes. Our friend couldn't be seen in public until after he disposed of you. The best thing was to convince everybody you were insane, as he did. Then, when you went overboard tonight... They would all believe it was suicide. Exactly. So Ricky makes his move trying to take out the doctor. He gets knocked overboard and chewed up by the propellers. On February 1st, 1948, the radio program Escape presented The Vanishing Lady, based on Alexander Wolcott's version of the story. But this one starts 20 years later, and the heroine Cynthia has been married for quite some time to Bruce, who was the man who helped her out in Paris. They have a daughter, Alice, and Alice asks about her grandmother which prompts Cynthia to start telling the story. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this radio show is that if you speak French, you get the solution very early on because we hear the exchange between the concierge and the doctor. To my great relief, they both spoke English. The doctor felt mother's pulse, took her temperature, and did the usual things that doctors do. Then he turned to the tail-coated hotel manager. Uh, français? Pas un mot, vous en êtes sûr? Bon, tout à fait. Alors, je ne peux parler à mon aise. Monsieur, ceci, c'est une affaire très sérieuse. N'ayez pas l'air alarmé lorsque je vous mets au courant. Cette femme est atteinte de la peste. De la peste. Elle n'a qu'une heure à vivre. Je n'ai pas besoin de vous dire... While they talked in this language I couldn't understand, I looked from one face to the other, trying to read from their expressions how serious my mother's illness was. And then there's this devastating conclusion. 
That's the story, Alice. That's why I've never been able to talk about your grandmother, Winship. Oh, Mother, how horrible. Because, all these years, I've clung to the foolish hope that somehow she'd come back and tell us herself what happened. Oh, you poor dear. You may as well dispel that hope forever, Cynthia. What? Since you've at last brought yourself to discuss your mother's disappearance, I think it's time you knew the true facts. Bruce. Your mother died <gasps> 20 minutes after you left the hotel on that fool's errand for the doctor. Oh, no. She died of the bubonic plague. She'd caught it in India before she sailed. The doctor recognized the symptoms the moment he examined her. He told the hotel manager in French, in your presence. They agreed that the matter must be kept completely secret. If the news leaked out that there was a case of plague in Paris, the city would have been emptied of visitors and the exposition would have been a failure. Oh, Bruce. The conspiracy of silence began in the hotel. The bellboy was paid to claim he never saw you. The taxi driver was paid well to take you to the doctor's house by the most roundabout route. The note to the doctor's wife advised her to detain you as long as she could. And the taxi driver added his own imaginative touch by returning you to the Ritz instead of the Universal. I shudder to think what might have happened if I hadn't come through the Place Vendôme just then. But you didn't know. Not then. When did you find out? Next morning. By then, the conspiracy had grown to international proportions. The embassy had been advised. If the exposition was a failure, the franc would fall, the pound sterling would be affected, that sort of thing. I knew when we went back to the hotel you would not find your plum drapes and rose-colored walls and black marble top table. And you let me go through with that... What, what could I do? I was acting under orders. I knew that the hotel had completely fumigated and redecorated the room overnight, and everything was in readiness to repudiate your story. I had to let the last act of the dreadful farce play to its dreadful end. Mother. What did they do with Mother? Her body was removed from the room less than 30 minutes after you left it. And immediately burned. Why? Why didn't you tell me this years ago? Why did you let me go on all this, this... time? This is the first time you have ever mentioned your mother since then, my dear. Alice... Yes, Mother. There's a new issue of the Tatler in the library, dear. Wouldn't you like to look at it? But, Mother, I want to... Now, dear. Want to have a talk with your father? Yeah, I would think so. Thanks a lot, Bruce, for keeping this from me for 20 years. In his article on Barebones Easing, Jack Seabrook mentions that this version, as I said is taken from the story published by author-critic Alexander Wolcott in his book While Rome Burns in 1934. Wolcott was himself a bit of a horror legend for dying on stage during a radio show. Oh, right, I didn't mention that. So here's Wikipedia's version of that. On January 23, 1943, he appeared on his last radio broadcast as a participant in a writer's warboard panel discussion on the CBS radio program The People's Platform. Marking the 10th anniversary of Adolf Hitler's rise to power, the topic was, Is Germany Incurable? Panelists included Wolcott, Hunter College President George Schuster, Brooklyn College President Henry Gideons, and novelists Rex Stout and Marcia Davenport. The program's format began as a dinner party in the studio's private dining room, with the microphones in place. 
Table talk would lead into a live network radio broadcast, and each panelist would begin with a provocative response to the topic. The German people are just as responsible for Hitler as the people of Chicago are for the Chicago Tribune, Wolcott stated emphatically. And the panelists noted Wolcott's physical distress. Ten minutes into the broadcast, Wolcott commented that he was feeling ill, but continued his remarks. It's a fallacy to think that Hitler was the cause of the world's present woes, he said. Wolcott continued, adding, Germany was the cause of Hitler. He said nothing further. The radio audience was unaware that Wolcott had suffered a heart attack. He died at New York's Roosevelt Hospital a few hours later, aged 56, of a cerebral hemorrhage. The Vanishing Lady story next surfaced on a television program, Sure as Fate. Now, if you can remember as far back as the beginning of this podcast, you may recall that that episode was mentioned by the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, and I gave some brief details at the start there as to who was in it. But that's all I know about that episode. I can't find out anything else. So let's move on to the movie that came out in the same year, So Long at the Fair. The film starred Gene Simmons and was co-directed by future Hammer Horror director Terrence Fisher. The story is essentially the same as the Hitchcock story, except in this case, it is a brother who has disappeared rather than a mother. You have a young English visitor staying here, a Monsieur John Barton. No, Monsieur, we have not. You see, they deny it. Patience, Mademoiselle. We are doing our best to find the truth. Mademoiselle insists that she came here with her brother and that he has disappeared. That is not all she says, Monsieur. She says also that his room disappeared during the night. His bedroom, Monsieur. <laughs> like that. Why do you think she should say this if it is not true? Because she's a little mad. That's why. So that brings us back to 1955 and the Hitchcock episode we've been looking at. And maybe we should stop right there. But I'm so far down into the rabbit hole that it's hard to climb out. So let's look at a few more things that don't come out until after 1955. First, there is the April 7th, 1957 version of The Vanishing Lady on the radio program Suspense. And that one is the same script as the Escape episode from 1948, but shortened eliminating the very cruel concept of Bruce concealing the fate of Cynthia's mother for 20 years. Instead, you have William Robeson, who wrote the script, providing a framing device. The story you are about to hear first appeared in the pages of the Detroit Free Press in the summer of 1889, at the time the Paris World's Fair was celebrating the 100th anniversary of the fall of the Bastille and the beginning of the French Revolution. It reappeared in the London Daily Mail in 1911. Two years later, Mrs. Bellock Lounge used it as the basis of her novel, The End of Her Honeymoon. And sometime after that, it became the storyline of another novel, She Who Was Helena Cass, by Lawrence Rising. As recently as 1951, it cropped up again as a British motion picture, So Long at the Fair. It is a hardy tale, a sort of modern folk tale. It has never been proved. It has never been disproved. And one can only wonder if in the dread secret archives of the police judiciaire in Paris, the real facts are recorded in fading ink on yellowing paper, locked forever from a curious and intrigued world. No one knows. Perhaps no one ever will know. But we can guess. And this, we guess, is what might have happened to lovely young Cynthia Winship and her mother as they arrived at the Hotel Creon one beautiful summer day, the day the great Paris World's Fair opened. So that was a nice recap of what we've just gone through, told in an overly dramatic fashion. 
Now, since this version has eliminated the 20 years after framing device, we're left with a rather anticlimactic explanation by William Robeson, much like Hemingway's afterthought in The Torrents of Spring. Well, that's the story as it may have happened. The lady, Mrs. Winship, had vanished, the room completely redecorated overnight. A gigantic conspiracy of silence, so cruel as to cause a young girl to take leave of her senses. But the stakes were higher than the sanity of a pretty English tourist. Mrs. Winship was suffering from bubonic plague, which she had caught before leaving India. The doctor had recognized the symptoms at once, recognized, too, that she had no more than an hour to live. And so on and so forth. So bear with me now. We're going to do just a couple more. We're going to jump up into the 1960s in the television show The Big Valley, an episode called Disappearance, in which Victoria Barclay, played by Barbara Stanwyck, goes with her daughter Audra to a hotel, and then the expected happens. Excuse me. Yes, Miss Barclay? Could you please tell me what room my daughter is in now? Who? My daughter, Audra. Your daughter? Well, she was in 37, the one next to mine, but I was just there and all her clothes are gone. No, ma'am. What does that mean? She wasn't in 37. Well, of course she was. That room's been empty for two days. Look, Mr. Uh... Gates. George Gates. Mr. Gates, I realize everybody's in a playful mood, but I'm just a little too tired to join in. Now, what room is she in? Mrs. Barkley, I'm not as fresh as a daisy myself, so I suppose we both stopped playing. You helped us check in just a few hours ago. A, a very pretty young girl with long blonde hair. Mrs. Barkley, if your daughter was in this hotel, she must have come in in a suitcase. I never forget a reservation. That's what you said when we registered. In this case, it turns out that Audra is abducted because the town, well, never mind. You can watch it if you want. Victoria sorts everything out. It's a nice variation on the urban legend, though. Okay, in 1991, Alvin Schwartz published his Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones, and included a short feature entitled Maybe You Will Remember, which deals with Mrs. Gibbs and her 16-year-old daughter Rosemary in Paris. It's the story we're familiar with. In this case, sort of like Hemingway again, Schwartz ends the story with a little note that says, but Rosemary's problem was not her memory. It was what she did not know. See page 102. So you go to the back, sort of like an old Encyclopedia Brown mystery book, and you get how the story ends. What happened to Rosemary's mother? When the hotel doctor saw Mrs. Gibbs, he knew at once that she was about to die. She had a form of the plague, a dread disease that killed quickly and caused frightening epidemics. And then it plays out in the same way in which we're familiar. Finally, I've seen some references to a 2002 television episode of a series called Beyond Belief, which apparently told the legend as a true story. But now that we've hit the 21st century, let's leave it there. Will it continue to crop up? Who knows? But if it does... We're all so used to it by now, we'll recognize it in an instant. So this episode has gone on for a very long time, but we do want to take a look at some of the people involved before we sign off. And let's begin with the writer of the episode, Marion Cockrell. This is from Jack Seabrook again at Barebones Ezine, which is at barebonesez.blogspot.com. Marion Cockrell wrote or co-wrote 11 episodes to her husband's 18. Her scripts were often lighter in tone than those of her husband, and many of her shows featured female protagonists, often seeming mentally unstable, but just as often cleverer than they were thought to be. 
This is also from Barebones Easing, from an interview with Amanda Cockrell, the daughter of Francis and Marion Cockrell. And she says, My mother also began writing magazine stories when Daddy began to sell them, as did his brother Eustace and his sister Ann Wormser and her husband Richard Wormser. Even my mother's stepfather got into the act with one short story that was adapted for Harold Lloyd. Writing was always their full-time job, and they were working writers their whole lives. She also says they went to California when they began to get screenwriting jobs. That was always Daddy's main genre after that, but Mama wrote novels as well, and liked that better because the aggravation factor was a lot lower. They began writing for movies and TV before I was born, so I'm a bit unclear on the details. But a lot of writers were going to Hollywood then because there were jobs. Daddy wrote some movies, but mainly television. He pretty much wrote what he could get an assignment for. Television killed the magazine short story market, so that was an inevitable switch. Now, Francis and Marion Cockrell wrote some Hitchcock episodes together. Their first co-teleplay is Who Done It, episode 26. But we'll see them both again before that. Marion's next teleplay is Santa Claus and the Tenth Avenue Kid, which is episode 12. Besides Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Marion Cockrell didn't write that much more television focusing on her novels instead. But she did write an episode of Suspicion and an episode of Perry Mason and several episodes of the Batman 1966 TV series. And Marion Cockrell died in 1999 at the age of 90. Speaking of the Batman TV series, Alan Napier, who played Sir Everett, is best known for playing Alfred in that series. A 2009 article in the Sunday Mercury says he was a first cousin once removed from Neville Chamberlain, and was a great-great-grandson of Charles Dickens, who he played in an episode of The Christmas Carol for the TV series Fireside Theater. He was with the Oxford Players with John Gilgood and Robert Morley, and he appears in a lot of films. Random Harvest, Cat People, The Uninvited, The Song of Bernadette, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Johnny Belinda, Julius Caesar, Orson Welles' Macbeth, My Fair Lady, and of course he is Elenu the High Priest in The Mole People. He's in three episodes of Thriller. He's in three episodes of Night Gallery. He's in the Twilight Zone episode, Passage on the Lady Anne. He's also in Alfred Hitchcock's film, Marnie. He's in two Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes and six episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, if you count all three parts of I Killed the Count as three episodes. And his next episode is the first one that Francis and Marion Cockrell write together, Who Done It? But as I said, he's best known for playing Alfred. Here's what he said about that. I had never read comics before I was hired for Batman. My agent rang up and said, I think you are going to play on Batman. I said, what is Batman? He said, don't you read the comics? I said, no, never. He said, I think you are going to be Batman's butler. I said, how do I know I want to be Batman's butler? It was the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard of. He said, it may be worth over $100,000. So I said I was Batman's butler. Now, those of us who were kids when Batman was on and thought Alfred looked really, really old. I'll just let you know that he was 63. Doesn't seem so old now. And Alan Napier died in 1988 at the age of 85. Jeffrey Toon, who plays Farnham, worked at the Old Vic in London in the 1930s with John Gielgud, Ralph Richardson, and Laurence Olivier. He was considered a matinee idol in those days. He's in the Peter Cushing film, Doctor Who and the Daleks. And he's in the Doctor Who episode, the Curse of Peladon. That's with John Pertwee, the third doctor. He's also in The King and I, and he died in 2010 at the age of 94. 
Just a couple of quick notes on some of the others. Maurice Marzak was the desk clerk, and he had a long career mostly as snooty French waiters. He died in 2007 at the age of 92. John Mylong, who played the doctor, appears in Mary, Hitchcock's German version of Murder, which he filmed using the same sets and actors. In the April 27, 1999 issue of The Village Voice, an article entitled Hitch notes, The rarest item in MoMA's Hitchcock retro is Mary, the German-language version of this 1930 murder shot simultaneously on the same sets at Elstree. The film surfaced in 1990 at an East German archive and has never been seen here before. In Murder, an actor has doubts about the guilt of the woman he helped convict and tracks down the real killer. Hitch enlivens the plot with a knockout opening shot, which anticipates rear window, caustic humor, an expressionistic soundtrack, and a kinky gay subtext. Twenty minutes shorter than Murder, Mary is tighter but not better. The director, who makes one of his cameos in Murder, is nowhere to be found in Mary. Gone also are the villain's sexual ambivalence and the theatrical scenes cross-relating art and life. Marshall's role is dryly played by Alfred Abel of Metropolis. Mary's single superiority is its heroine, where Bering is vacant, Olga Chekawa is soulful and moving as the wrong and wronged woman. That Alfred Abel of Metropolis is not Superman's town, but the film by Fritz Lang. Peter Camlin, who plays the porter in this episode, also plays a head waiter in Hitchcock's 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. So that's coming right up for him. And director Don Medford directed Triggers in Leash two episodes ago. But this is the last time we'll see Don. This is his last Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. All right, that covers pretty much everybody we need to cover, except for Pat Hitchcock. Pat Hitchcock, uh, Mr. Hitchcock's daughter, who was an actress on her own and did roles in in many of his features uh, through the years, did some television also, and she was marvelous. She was a good actress. May I have my key, please, number 342? Qui désirez-vous voir, mademoiselle? I'm afraid you've forgotten. I don't speak French. He did direct quite a few of, of the shows. And uh, I was really sorry I couldn't be in any of his. <laughs> I did a lot of them. I did two where I had uh, the leading parts. But then I would play, you know, just small parts, you know, and just whenever they needed a maid or something, I'd go in and do it. That was Hilton A. Green and Pat Hitchcock herself, of course, from the Alfred Hitchcock Presents A Look Back short feature on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD set. Now, Wikipedia says, as a child, Pat Hitchcock knew she wanted to be an actress. In the early 1940s, she began acting on the stage and doing summer stock. Her father helped her gain a role in the Broadway production of Solitaire, she also played the title role in the Broadway play Violet when she was age 14 for Solitaire and age 16 for Violet. In the short feature The Making of Psycho, Pat says, I'd always wanted to be an actress. The first time I really knew I wanted to be was when I was seven years old and I was in England in boarding school. I played two parts there. Then I came over here with my parents when my father came over to make Rebecca. There were a lot of parts I thought I could have played in his pictures, but he would only cast me if I was exactly right for the part. But back to Solitaire for a moment. Here is an excerpt from a review of the play from the January 30th, 1942 issue 
of the Gloucester Citizen, the article entitled British Girl Makes Hit on Broadway. Broadway today welcomed a petite new star in Pat Hitchcock, 12 years old daughter of the British film director Alfred Hitchcock. She is playing the lead in John Van Druten's new play Solitaire, which opened last night. The plot deals with the companionship of a tramp and a young girl of a wealthy but unsympathetic family. The critics gave the play a pleasant reception, but reserved the highest praise for Pat, who is on the stage for most of the three acts and handled a difficult part with great charm. Pat, a slender brown-haired girl with an impish smile, said, I never had any ambitions to be an actress, which of course contradicts what we just heard her say before, or what I quoted her saying before. Now, according to Wikipedia again, she and her mother, Alma Revel, are extras in the film Sabotage when Pat was eight years old. But she's mainly known for the larger roles she has in three different Hitchcock films, Stage Fright, Strangers on a Train, and Psycho, where she's the other secretary in the office with Janet Leigh. She is in 10 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the next one being The Older Sister, episode 17. But what Pat Hitchcock is more than anything else is a staunch defender of her father and his work, something she continues to do today. And as such, she appears in almost every one of these short films about the makings of the different films of Hitchcock. And she's been interviewed extensively about Hitchcock. And she can be quite defensive, particularly when faced with accounts like those of Tippi Hedren. Here's one response she had. There was one story that her daughter tells which I barely remember, and it certainly wasn't meant to be sadistic. In fact, everybody laughed about it at the time. Uh, they went to dinner at Chasen's, and my father had something, it was something to do with a little coffin, and in it had a little tiny doll that, that uh, he had had made up to look like Tippy, and it was in relation to some joke. It wasn't just a, a flat thing like this, you know. And it was it was supposed to be a very amusing thing. It was, you know, the end of a joke. Everybody laughed about it. And all of a sudden now her daughter is coming out saying, oh, he was so sadistic and oh, he did this. It really, you know, I, I can't think of any time, you know, when he was ever really, I think probably the most sadistic thing he ever did would, when he would come into my room before I woke up, get hold of my lipstick and make a clown's face on me. Now that I thought was sadistic, but apart from that, that that's about it. <laughs> this is from an article in The Guardian, August 27th, 1999, entitled The Woman Who Knew Too Much, where the writer clearly tries very hard to demonstrate that Pat's placid defense of her father is a cover-up. So the article says, so it was just fun, his daughter says, when he'd come home from the studio late at night and the first thing he'd do was go to Pat's room and paint a clown's face on her sleeping features. So that was what she'd see when she awoke and looked in the mirror. Because isn't that what all little girls do, look in the mirror to check their loveliness is intact? I wasn't frightened. I always knew it was him. Or when, much later, during the filming of Strangers on a Train, he bet her $100 that she wouldn't dare to go up on the Ferris wheel, knowing I hated heights, which she instantly did, and he then stopped the wheel with her chair at its summit, turned out the lights, and left her there for an hour. The only sadism involved was that I never got the $100. An article in the Times, entitled Even Scarier Than Psycho, also tries to prompt Pat into negative things about her father, and she gets quite taciturn at this point. I ask her what stands out in her childhood memories of her father. I don't think there's any particular thing at all, says Hitchcock O'Connell. 
To prompt her, I say that I have read in a biography of her father that he used to paint her face when she was asleep. Sometimes when I was very young, she is quoted as saying, I would wake up and look in the mirror and he had drawn a clown's face on me. This happened a lot. But when I mention this, she looks cross, as though I have intruded. That was once, she says dismissively. So Pat clearly isn't interested in talking about any controversies surrounding her father. But she is more than willing to contribute to things that honor his work and his legacy, including writing a short foreword to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom. And in it she writes... When Lou Wasserman came to my father with the idea for a television series, my father was a little reluctant. However, with the enormous respect and fondness that he had for Lou over many years, he agreed. He could not conceive of anyone but Joan Harrison to produce it. Joan and my parents had been working together since the 1930s. He knew that she could keep the integrity that he always insisted upon, and later the assistant producer, another old friend, Norman Lloyd. When the idea for my father came to do the lead-ins, they found James Allardyce, When Norman saw them, he said, Hitch will never do these. However, my father liked them, and whenever he had to make a speech, he told Jimmy what he wanted to say, and Allardyce wrote them. I remember Alfred Hitchcock Presents with great fondness, as I was lucky enough to appear in many of them. I feel that Alfred Hitchcock Presents was unique in that the stories, writers, and actors were all first class. And that is from August of 2000. And let's hear what Pat has to say about her mother, Alma Revel. This is from the transcript from the documentary Destination Hitchcock. When my mother and father first met, she had been in the motion picture business since she was 16, and she was working as an editor, a cutter. But in the days when you put one reel here, it went through a little sort of viewer, and another reel over there, and it ruined her eyes, I might say. And this young man came in, and what he was there for was drawing the pictures for the subtitles. On the sunsets, he'd draw the sun setting, and that's where they met. He never spoke to her because she had a much better job than he did. Then you didn't do that. And then eventually she became an editor on a picture he was going to be assistant director on. So then that was all right. He could talk to her. Actually, it was very soon after he met her that he became a director. Then she worked with him on all of his pictures. So I like that notion of Hitchcock not being able to talk to his future wife because she had a better job than he did. Now, Into Thin Air was actually the first episode filmed. And in an interview for the Archives of American Television, Pat Hitchcock mentions that it was filmed in only two days. She adds that after that, they realized that the time was too short and subsequent episodes were given three days. So it feels like we've given this two days ourselves. Let's wrap up. You have to say that no matter what their reasoning is, the entire plan to deceive Diana is very cruel and overly elaborate. It would be so much easier to just tell Diana the truth and not put her through this agony. I'm sure she wouldn't have gone racing through the streets yelling, plague, plague. But then you wouldn't have an urban legend or an Alfred Hitchcock episode. As the Pie Lady puts it at pieladyanthology.wordpress.com, it seems implausible that the doctor wouldn't simply tell Diana out in the hallway that her mother has bubonic plague and then make arrangements with the embassy. Why put little Diana through all of that? That takes a lot of energy, and it seems cruel. Diana is so sweet and kind, she doesn't deserve a charade like that. I was hoping the reason for the duplicity would be more exciting. I just felt even sorrier for Diana at the end. And you can't help but feel sorry for Diana, all the way through, even at the end. But is there a point to the end? Is there a point to the story? You'll recall that Jan Harold Brunvand says that urban legends have a moral. 
If so, then what is the moral of this story? Is it just xenophobia about both France and India, about traveling in foreign lands? Could be. But I see it more as a parable of self-sufficiency. If you read the versions where the heroine goes insane, or it's 20 years later that her husband finally tells her the truth, then it becomes a cautionary tale about traveling abroad. But if you watch Into Thin Air, it's a lesson in how to deal with the losses of life and how to take charge of your own life when you no longer have a parent there to help you. In her essay, Rematerializing the Vanishing Lady, Feminism, Hitchcock, and Interpretation, featured in the book A Hitchcock Reader, edited by Marshall Dudelbaum and Leland Pogue, Patrice Petro writes, If the title of The Lady Vanishes raises the question of woman, it also seems to suggest an inevitable narrative resolution. The lady, the woman, the secret support of narrative and symbolic order, must vanish from representation in order for the narrative to contain the threat she poses by virtue of her sexual difference. While a feminist analysis cannot entirely dismiss such a resolution, it is also important to stress that the film does not present the heroine's progression towards Oedipus and heterosexual union in a straightforward or inevitable way. Instead, The Lady Vanishes explores female desire both within and on the margins of Oedipal paternal relations, occasioning a textual movement through which effectual desire is activated for the spectator by focusing upon the heroine's search for the mother and for what rapidly becomes the lost object of her original desire. Now, if that seems a bit much to you, just remember that there is the moment in The Lady Vanishes where Miss Froy has to spell her name on the window because Iris perhaps thinks that she said Freud. It's also worth noting that, as you'll hear in a moment, Hitchcock in his outro makes the point of saying that Diana and Basil, that is, Farnham, do not get married. Well, you have some versions of this story with the women going insane or being utterly passive throughout. The quiet, submissive Diana turns when she gets an idea and takes the bull by the horns, declaring her self-sufficiency going through a charade to get the desk clerk to show her the room again, ripping the wallpaper off herself. As much as you may feel sorry for Diana throughout this entire episode, as the pie lady does, she also exerts her strength at the end. So there's clearly no need for her to be marrying Basil. She's now become a force of her own. Oh, I'm uh, glad to see so many of you are still with us. There was a disturbing suggestion at the very close of our story, which I wish to clear up at once. You will be relieved to hear that Diana and Basil's story ended happily. They did not get married. And now for that part of the program you have all been waiting for, after which I'll be back. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD set, which includes the Alfred Hitchcock Presents A Look Back short feature, the Criterion Collection of The Lady Vanishes, and Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. Room number three, The End of Her Honeymoon, She Who Was Helena Cass, So Long at the Fair, The Big Valley episode, all of the radio shows, and all of the urban legend articles are available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please write to Scherzma A at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D. S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in your subject line. Next time, episode six, Salvage, starring Gene Barry and Nancy Gates. 
And if you think Hitchcock is going to go through the entire episode today without pointing out his daughter, then you need to hear the close. And that completes our offering for tonight. However, I am not giving up. Next week, I plan to stage a comeback and shall present another in our series of situation tragedies. Good night. Oh, uh, incidentally, uh, I thought the little leading lady was rather good, didn't you? <laughs>